This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Patrick serves up the hardest-hitting podcast in tennis with news, politics, and insights you won't find anywhere else. Here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, and I've been looking forward to having my guest back back on the program for quite some time. Uh, you remember him when the Naomi Osaka story came became a big story a couple of years ago, and that was when I was in the early stages of doing my podcast. Now we've made it all the way to season four, and Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman joins me to discuss just overall mental health, also his new book, which came out very recently, Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia, and the Path to Prevention, because I know, Doc, that you've been studying this particular topic for many, many years, your years at Columbia University, the head of psychiatry there. Um, how did this come? This book come? First of all, thank you for coming back on the show. You know, your podcast with me that we did, and I think we did a second one too, uh, one of the most listened to podcasts I ever did. So thank you for that. And thank you for coming back and joining me here on Holding Court. Well, thanks, Patrick. It's great to be back with you uh, and in an area that uh, I can at least stay on equal ground cause with you and talking. Because <laughs> when we're on the tennis court, it's very uneven. But um, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, popularity of the podcast with me because um, <clears throat> of the various things I've written for the lay public books uh, op-eds, the article that's gotten the most hits and interest is one called The Profession Everyone Needs and Nobody Wants, which refers to psychiatry. Right. Um, and uh, for whatever reasons, I'll leave my mother out of this, but um, I chose a good Jewish boy. Uh, I guess I was destined to be a doctor, but not necessarily a psychiatrist. But then I became interested in it, and it's a fascinating field. It just doesn't it's what I call the Rodney danger field of medical specialties. It doesn't get the respect that it uh, deserves, but um, it's the difference in not just uh, having a good quality of life, but oftentimes life and death. And it pertains to uh, really everyone from the worried well, as I call them, you know, people who just have problems in life ups and downs, like everybody does, uh, um, and also individuals that have, you know, bona fide mental illnesses. So um, the new book uh, is on schizophrenia, which I consider to be kind of the flagship or the poster child for mental illnesses because, you know, most people, you know, if you have chest pain or you have uh, 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 arthritic pain, people know what it is, know what to do, but when it comes to you know difficulty thinking, you're controlling your emotions, being able to stay focused, being able to manage the uh, vicissitudes of daily life, um, people aren't sure how to regard that as their own limitations or an illness. And then if they do think it could be something that needs professional attention, who do you see and where do you go? So I decided to start with schizophrenia because when people think of insanity, madness, lunacy, crazy, um, that's what they're thinking of. They're thinking of people who have schizophrenia. When you talk about schizophrenia, and by the way, I should let everyone know that Dr. Lieber and I are, are fairly regular tennis partners, and uh, the, the intensity level that you bring to the court is inspiring to me. So I love what I love too, and I'm just going to put this out there, Doc, because, you know, I have to talk to my fans because they're like my friends. The best thing that I like about playing with Dr. Lieberman is his intensity, and when he misses a shot and he gets annoyed, Jeffrey, Jeffrey, 
That's your favorite saying is when you get pissed at yourself. So I, lo- I love when you do that because I know you're, you're into it and you're focused. But um, schizophrenia is something that you talk about in your book. That's something, obviously, when you know, the, the common person thinks about it, like you said, you think about someone who's, who's lost their marbles, right? But what you, you figured out in your years of studying this and your interest in it is that actually medically it can be treated in a way that maybe you, we never thought was possible. How did you come to that conclusion that this is something that actually can be treated and actually in some, in some ways can be prevented as well? Yeah. Well, my father, may he rest in peace, used to say that sometimes it's better to be lucky than smart. And um, psychiatry has benefited from serendipity. Um, all of the major classes of psychotropic medications that help so many people were discovered mostly by by accident. And uh, the same uh, uh, occurred with respect to the um, insight into the fact that schizophrenia could be treated not just by suppressing symptoms, by preventing its progression and the disability that it inflicts on people in a a somewhat uh, uh, accidental or serendipitous way. But um, Schizophrenia is not a new illness. It's existed from really the beginning of recorded history. You have instances in the Bible. You know, Saul was uh, possessed with all kinds of um, uh, mood changes and paranoid delusions. Um, I'm sorry to say this, but some of the people who have been considered saints or exceptional individuals like St. Francis of Assisi or Joan of Arc uh, probably suffered from schizophrenia. Um, uh, and through history, it was considered to be a supernatural affliction or, uh, or, or virtue. Um, and in the Middle Ages, it was thought to be uh, someone who was morally deviant um, or uh, religiously heretical. And then in the modern age, um, it was thought to be a naturally occurring condition, meaning it was an illness of the brain, but there was no real understanding of what caused it. And then Everything changed in the middle of the 20th century in the ni- 1950s when, by accident, uh, medications were discovered that could turn people who were in mental asylums into almost normal. Um, and that opened a pathway to understand what is the underlying disturbance in the brain that caused people to go uh, off their rocker um, in terms of their perception and their thinking uh, and it led to understanding through neurochemical imbalances. Um, but even though we had some insight into the basis of the condition, <clears throat> and even though we could treat it uh, uh, somewhat effectively, um, it was thought that it only suppressed the symptoms, that it didn't prevent the inexorable progression of the illness that rendered people essentially mental invalids. Um, But, uh, and this is where my career uh, sort of takes off, Um, it didn't make sense that um, even though the general belief was that the cause of schizophrenia is genetic, affects the brain's development, uh, and the inference therapeutically based on that was that, okay, if you have it just like with autism or Down syndrome or fragile X, you're doomed from the womb. It didn't make sense that 
when people develop the illness in their teens or early adulthood, early 20s, that they're, they deteriorated mentally over time because that suggested that something was going on that was progressive and maybe could be stopped. And what we learned is that if you get there in time, a stitch in time saves time, if you identify people right when the symptoms are beginning and you treat people and bring them into remission, stabilize the chemical imbalance, uh, and maintain them uh, in treatment so they don't have relapses, they can live essentially a normal life. Um, but because of the second-class status that mental health care has had in our health system uh, and the skepticism that people have had about psychiatry and what it could really do and if it was scientifically valid, we haven't provided access to that kind of care, and it still doesn't exist, which I believe is not just a, um, a, 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 a disparity, but a civil rights violation, because there's a huge population of people who suffer who aren't getting what they could benefit from. Well, I, I want to talk a lot about that, the mental health side of it, because I know that's something that interests you as well. You and I have discussed it before during our breaks on the tennis court when sometimes we both need a break. Uh, but I do want to ask you one particular thing about schizophrenia. And would you mention that you can usually the onset you can start to see in, in the teenage years or early 20s. What are the things that the that people should be looking for? As, as, as warning signals that this is something that could be affecting, you know, a loved one or a friend or someone in your family's life? What are the things that the average person should look for and then say, oh, I, I, I need to take this person to a mental health specialist, to a psychiatric specialist? You know, one of the cruel ironies is that youth is the sweet spot for mental illness. In other words, the majority of mental illnesses, apart from, you know, the dementias, uh, and uh, the early onset things like autism um, occur in uh, the adolescent and early adult years when people are coming into the prime of their life. And um, this is uh, something that's uh, problematic in terms of the identification of the symptoms and the need to seek uh, professional attention because at that age, people are going through changes as they mature. They're trying to find themselves, develop an identity, becoming independent. Uh, and you don't know if they're going through phases or they're experiencing behavioral changes that are harbingers of a mental illness, and particularly schizophrenia. So it requires close attention by parents, um, not to be helicopter parents, but to be vigilant to when kids are changing their interests, are uh, stopping uh, associating with the friends they traditionally have. Uh, their academic performance you know, dramatically is altered, usually uh, in decreasing. Um, they become more interested in some type of uh, cults or religions or kind of obscure uh, esoteric um, uh, area of, of study. Um, one thing that also has become... Uh, extremely worrisome is that um, because of the frequency of recreational drug use and the legalization of cannabis, um, we are in a situation by making it available uh, that, uh, that youth will be using it. And 
cannabis is a trigger for people who are vulnerable to develop schizophrenia. So the rate of schizophrenia, which is uh, now about one in every hundred persons, will likely go up. And um, this is, shows you the kind of social dilemmas and policy dilemmas that uh, are faced that, you know, people say, why should cannabis be illegal or can't be any worse than tobacco or alcohol is? Uh, that's true for you and me who are middle-aged, um, or I'm a little more than middle-aged, but, um, <laughs> but for kids, for kids, it's really uh, rolling the dice. Uh, because it plays with their brain as it's still maturing. And for kids that have genetic or constitutional susceptibilities to mental disorders like schizophrenia, it's basically put, you know, lighting a match to, uh, to, to, to a fire, uh, causing a fire. And um, you know, we're seeing that more. And also the commercially produced cannabis is higher in concentration uh, of THC than the naturally grown cannabis that uh, you and I may have imbibed in college, but certainly didn't inhale like President Clinton um, <laughs> right, was, right, which right. was much, much lower. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the, the bottom line in terms of a message is be very vigilant and don't be afraid to uh, act. Acting is seeking professional attention, even if it's overkill, even if it's just a person going through their a kid going through their changes as they find themselves and grow up um, because uh, the worst that can happen is they said, you know, this is fine. You know, this is part of a process. Uh, it's not a harbinger of an illness. And uh, you just wait and see if anything progresses further that is more indicative of the symptoms. And the symptoms mainly are disturbances in one's perception. In other words, thinking that um, things are happening that aren't really happening or over-interpreting uh, uh, things that someone says or actions that uh, other people do. Um, or uh, if people begin um, having what are called illusions, thinking that they're getting communications or of, uh, uh, through their auditorily or even visually that aren't there, um, those are clearly signs that there's something that's abnormal as opposed to these questionable behaviors. So oh, I'm just changing who I hang out with and what kinds of things I'm interested in. But going to get help, uh, uh, even if it's erring on the side of caution, is the thing to do. And as to where you go, it's not your clergyman. It's not necessarily the school psychologist. It's not uh, a therapist. It's not a new age person. Um, start at the top, the most knowledgeable um, a psychiatrist, and if it's nothing that's really uh, uh, clearly in the realm of serious kind of disorder, then uh, if someone just needs assistance working a problem out, like right. uh, my relationship, my parents are bad, I can't focus on school, and my romantic relationships are always conflictual, um, then you can see a less expensive, less you know, uh, uh, advanced trained psychologist, social worker, or therapist. Interesting. Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman here, uh, Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia and the Path to Prevention is his latest book. I encourage you also to check out the book he released a number of years ago, which I've read as well, Shrinks, 
The Untold Story of Psychiatry. And that is a fascinating read as well. By the way, you can go to Amazon, just search Jeffrey Lieberman to find uh, the books that he's written. Really interesting stuff. Uh, We're going to take a quick break now, Doc. When we come back, I know that you have a lot of thoughts on just overall mental health. I've already heard some of them in what you've said to the audience thus far. But I want to dig into that with you when we come back here on Holding Court. North Organic CBD is a new sponsor of Holding Court. I love their CBD gummies. They come in two delicious flavors, strawberry lemonade and green apple. I've had them both, both amazing. One a day and you're totally okay. I like to stay active. I like to keep playing tennis. I like to get in the gym. That's why I love North Organic CBD. Their products are made in the USA. They're high quality. They're specially formulated, broad spectrum, organic CBD products for everyday adventurers. Don't forget about the very popular CBD salve from North Organics. Immediate relief of any physical pain. I use it daily for my sore shoulders, sore knees, hips, you name it. It works wonders. Go to NorthOrganicCBD.com and enter Patrick20, that's Patrick20, for 20% off your order. The Johnny Mac Tennis Project transforms young lives. By removing the economic, racial, and social barriers to success through tennis. JMTP provides tennis as a vehicle for greater life opportunity. The programming provides a pathway to success through competitive tennis, leading to increased health and fitness, college scholarships, and incredible career opportunities. JMTP introduces tennis to thousands of underserved New York children every week. To date, the Johnny Mac Tennis Project has reached over 10,000 students through its community programs, providing 462 individual scholarships, totaling over $8.6 million, and 32 of its scholarship recipients have gone on to receive college scholarships through tennis. For more info, go to jmtpny.org. I can't wait to hit the court after school. All right, welcome back to Holding Court, everyone. Patrick McEnroe here in the midst of our fascinating conversation with Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman. Check out his book, Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia and the Path to Prevention, that's been just released. He, of course, a frequent tennis partner of mine and a heck of a, particularly at the net, very quick hands, Dr. Lieberman at the net. We spend a lot of time working on those volleys. Let's volley this around, though, because I know you, you and I have also spent a lot of time discussing just overall mental health in, in the world, in the, in, in the world of professional tennis and sports in general, but just in the world. And, you know, this is something that's become, uh, it, it, it's become a, a topic that's out there a little bit more. I know that's something that's de- near and dear to your heart, Dr. Lieberman, that you feel like there's been a stigma attached to some of these mental health issues over the years. So give me your sense of where we are at as a society right now in being able to bring these types of issues to the forefront. It's a situation that, you know, to use the uh, Dick Enzian uh, uh, phrase, uh, the best of times and worst of times. In other words, um, if you suffer from a mental disorder or you're just having some mental stresses and challenges, uh, it's the best time in human history because there's more awareness, there's more available in the way of treatment, and there's more knowledge about the causes of the conditions and how to treat it. Uh, on the other hand, it's still far from optimal, and it's far from the level of healthcare that's available for every other type of medical specialty. 
Um, and that has to do with uh, uh, stigma, um, historical missteps that uh, occurred in psychiatry with lobotomies, with um, malaria therapy, with asylums that became snake pits. Um, uh, but the f- fact is that uh, wiping or cleaning the slate from what happened historically, now there's many people who suffer from conditions that don't get treatment that could benefit from enormously. And the key is uh, uh, starting or identifying the condition early and treating early. And um, it's not just an either or, meaning you're mentally ill or you're not, because it's really on a spectrum, because everyone in the course of their life has challenges emotionally, uh, uh, cognitively, uh, intellectually, with how they have to deal with the ups and downs of life. Um, that particularly is the case in competitive environments and none more so than professional sports. So first, um, let me make a distinction again between what I'm euphemistically or glibly calling the worried well. So the worried well are individuals that don't have a predisposition to a mental disorder such as schizophrenia, depression, bipolar, anxiety, uh, and addiction, okay? Um, They're just, you know, you lose a loved one. Uh, You get fired from your job. Uh, Your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you. You're going to have an emotional reaction, but you can reestablish your emotional equilibrium. It doesn't go on forever. It's not disproportionate to the uh, uh, the, uh, misfortune that you experience. When you have a mental disorder, it's disproportionate to whatever your environmental circumstances. It persists. It's distressing, sometimes disabling, um, and uh, uh, it goes on indefinitely. Um, So uh, individuals who um, uh, are in competitive sports are going to have the extreme types of worried well challenges because you lose a match. How do you cope with that? And not only that, you're doing it from a very early age. You're doing it from when you're a a kid, a a pre-puber, a a pre-adolescence. And as we've discussed, um, the people that become successful professional athletes are so skilled and so strong and so disciplined, they can withstand these things on their own. But... Uh, for every one of them that does, there's thousands that don't, and they suffer kind of uh, psychological or experiential injuries that affect them for the rest of their lives. So um, a lot could be paid attention to how to provide some means of support for uh, the cohort of uh, kids at different levels of development, as well as when they become collegiate or professionally competitive, um, and also guidance for their parents. And this is where I think uh, uh, institutions, and you know, you were head of the USTA, uh, right. you were the Davis Cup captain, and now congratulations, you were elected, I guess, for the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Yes, so I got president that right. of the Tennis Hall of Fame. Yep, that's right. So here I'm, I'm, throwing, out, I'm throwing out the challenge, Patrick. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh-oh. You know, it's not a popular thing for people to take on a cause 
of mental well-being and mental illness. Um, but you can have an amazing impact by bringing attention to it. Um, well, that's part. That's part. That's part of what season four of this podcast is about. Because I'm I'm doing a lot of focus on uh, talking to people with you with not exactly your background, but the mental performance, just overall mental health. Let me ask you this, Doc, because I, I I'm interested to hear your take on this. Because coming from you know you mentioned the sports world and you know growing up as a kid, as I did playing you know, high level junior tennis and obviously dealing with kids all the time at our, at our tennis Academy, the John McEnroe tennis Academy, where you play with me at, at Randall's Island. There's certain kids that you say, Oh, they're just tough. They're mentally tough, you know, for whatever reason. Is that, is that in your opinion, um, all genetic, partly genetic, a learned skill? How does someone become mentally tough? Tough, as we used to call it, mentally tough. Now maybe it's just you know resilient. Whatever the the phrase of the day is, the most appropriate. It, how much of that is learned? How much is that is is sort of a gift to a certain individual? Uh, um, uh, that's the nature versus nurture question, and uh, it begins with uh, nature, um, meaning uh, genetics and uh, constitution. Uh, you, you're born with with certain traits that manifest themselves in terms of temperament and uh, a, a you know, set of behavioral or behavioral repertoire. Um, and uh, that is your starting point. It can be a, a huge advantage um, uh, if it suits what your uh, interests and course of, uh, of um, professional activity or, or vocational activity is in life. Um, but then you can also um, optimize it or, or, or diminish it in terms of how you're raised, uh, how you're educated, uh, what kinds of things you're taught. So you can be, uh, let's say you're born with tremendous endowment. You know, your parents were uh, marathoners or you know, Navy SEALs or elite forces or right. something like that. And the genes have to have been transferred, although, you know, there's variation in that process, too. But um, uh, you're raised like a wimp and you're babied and you're 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 kept from having to experience things that uh, are upsetting and protected. Um, and you're 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 kind of infantilized by that. Um, so that will diminish your ability to, to do that. You know, there's a saying about uh, uh, you can protect kids from everything that's unpleasant and dangerous, or you can make them strong. Um, uh, and so that can modify your genetic constitutional temperament um, uh, and treat people, uh, teach kids how to deal with uh, adversity, how to deal with challenges, how to be able to understand when uh, they are put in situations where they become anxious or frightened or they become you know, disappointed and dejected as a result of a situation. Um, we don't teach parents how to raise children. And uh, there's a, also a paradox in the sense that pediatricians, if you ask any pediatrician, they will say that 40% of their practice with kids is mental health. Um, but pediatricians are not taught that much about how to deal with it in, in education. So 
the good news is there's a lot of opportunity here. The bad news is we haven't taken advantage of it too. But just to give you a contrast, um, and I'm just talking off the top of my head now, uh, Jimmy Connors, uh, right. your brother's your brother's uh, you know, longtime friend and occasional <laughs> nemesis. Um, I don't know about friend, but okay. Yeah, this is this is this is one tough yeah. son of a gun. You know, if, if you're yes. in a foxhole, you'd like him next to you. And then uh, what's the guy's name? Ernest Golbus. Remember him? Oh, sure. Yeah. Latvian. No, he, his, was, he was Lat- he was very talented, but he was a little crazy out there. And his father was a billionaire. You know, he flew in a He didn't have to yes. grind, you know, grind it out on the Challenger and Futures Tour, right. staying in motels and with and so forth. Um, so, you know, it shows you how somebody with he had tremendous talent. But uh, uh, he lived in this enriched environment that um, uh, it, it, he that that diminished his ability and whatever his natural skills were. Um, and I'm talking about it at an individual level. And what I'm saying, and this occurs in the educational system, it occurs in uh, you know professional athletic organizations um, that. Uh, there a lot could be done at a, a systematic association or or organizational level that provides some support. Um, and excellent doesn't be the have to be the enemy of good. Um, uh, right. Just doing something will help untold numbers of kids as they grow up and society as a whole in general. I want to ask you uh, about yourself a little bit more, Doc, because I know. When you were younger, you were a big football player. In fact, you played in college, played quarterback um, in college. So what do you see? And then obviously in, in your years now, I don't know, when did you get into tennis? Like how, how did you get into tennis playing-wise? Was it after college or did you play as a kid? Well, I got into it too late. I mean, when I was growing up, team sports were the thing. That's how you got the girls right. and you became popular. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I, I didn't play golf and tennis, or tennis seriously. Um, but, uh, I was dating a girl who was a very good tennis player and her father was a good tennis player. And so I started playing tennis with her. And, um, even though, uh, uh, in, you know, after college and medical school and afterwards, I would still play basketball or play touch football. Uh, uh, I soon just gravitated to focusing on tennis because it's a sport of a lifetime. Right. And uh, I stopped playing golf because it took too much time and it wasn't much exercise. And uh, I decided I wanted to be the next Patrick McEnroe. <laughs> That's aiming high right there. That's aiming real high. All right. How um, would you describe if you have one? I know you're coming back from an injury because you and I need to get back on the court soon. Uh, pickleball. What about your any any uh, pickleball in Dr. Lieberman's future? You're, you're, are you a tennis yeah, purist? Because, p- you know, there's a big conflict. Pickle, pi- Pickleball is a poor man's tennis. It's 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 not the real. De- I mean, I I I'm, I I don't I don't uh, uh, begrudge people who play pickleball or the sport in general. Uh, it's good that people do something. It's just such an easier game, um, and uh, right. uh, it's it doesn't require anything like the skill required in tennis or the stamina and uh, exertion that's required in tennis. And the other thing is that if you look, co-locate pickleball courts and tennis courts, it's really annoying because they make so much noise. <laughs> very, yeah, they're very loud. That's true. Well, Andre Agassi had a great line because I just got back from covering the pickleball slam, which was my brother 
Michael Chang, Roddick, and Agassi playing uh, pickleball. And Agassi said when his interview afterwards, pickleball is where former tennis players go to die. I thought that was a good, that was a good line. Pretty funny line. Yeah. Leave it to Agassi to come up with the one-liner. All right, before I let you go, Doc, and I appreciate you giving me so much time here on Holding Court. Again, the book is Malady of the Mind, Schizophrenia, and the Path to uh, Prevention. Uh, what's the one thing that I haven't asked you that you want to uh, get across to my audience right here? The, the, the floor is yours to finish things up here as for what Dr. Lieberman wants to say. Uh, in so many areas of life and in our society um, could be benefited by an increased uh, awareness and emphasis on mental health care and well-being. Um, this is something that would be, it, it, was, it would be a rising tide that lifts all boats um, uh, in all respects and the fact that it doesn't get the attention and the resources uh, and that it needs is principally due to stigma and that um, the powers that be, meaning government, institutional leadership, have not seen uh, the importance and value in it uh, sufficiently to overcome whatever the reticence is to embrace what might have been kind of an unpopular or a somewhat you know, stigmatized cause. Um, and it's going to happen. It's only a question of when. And what I've really tried to focus on, and particularly now in this phase of my career, dedicate myself to is making it happen sooner rather than later. And it applies in so many different areas. For example, college. You have daughters. You're going on yes. college visits soon. Or you're going on yeah. them already. Uh, yeah. When you go and you evaluate a college, do you have do you do anything to check out what kind of student health services they have or student mental health services they have? No. Probably no. No. Yeah. I mean, who does? Um, right. But th the matriculating classes of all colleges now, particularly the uh, elite ones, uh, 30 to 40 percent uh, had a, a psychiatric experience before and they're on a psychotropic drug. And then the incidence of uh, behavioral situations that require some kind of counseling or professional attention has increased enormously. Rates of drinking, rates of uh, traumatic uh, abuse, the rates of suicide uh, have gone up. Um, but universities are ambivalent about what they do. Why? There's no revenue stream and they don't want to take on the liability. Similarly, uh, NBA, NFL, you see these stories about the athletes that have, you know, uh, domestic violence or drug use or, you know, gambling or things of this sort. Um, there should be institutional uh, efforts to try and address these things and not just, you know, by uh, giving lip service to it or you know, uh, a Band-Aid solution but genuinely seeing how they can benefit the constituencies that they serve. So, um, you know, like I said, the good news is there's a lot that can be done, but we're just slow in doing it. 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of good news, and I think uh, a big part of it is you've dedicated your life to it, Doc. I know for over 40 years you've been at the forefront of this, pushing it forward. So on behalf of all of us, I say thank you for putting it out there and for continuing to uh, beat that drum. So Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, everyone, it's been a pleasure and honor to have you back on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to getting you back on that tennis court, very, very, not the pickleball court, the tennis court. Okay, I accept the challenge, and I'll see you there soon. (laughs) You got it. Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, everyone, on Holding Court. Don't forget to subscribe to and share Holding Court. Holding Court is powered by Mudhouse Media.